Welcome to CLC Connects, the podcast that connects CLC experts with you. I'm your host, Jesse Prue. This episode is going to sound a little different than usual. Today, you'll be hearing stories recorded live at the Voices of Lake County Spring Showcase on May 12th. But first, we'll be joined by Laura Otto, CLC English faculty. She's going to tell us a little bit more about Voices of Lake County and how to get involved. And after that, we'll jump into four stories revolving around the theme of work. Professor Otto, welcome to CLC Connects. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. Laura, we've only bumped into each other a few times. I don't know that much about you. Will you tell us all about you as our CLC English expert? So I'm finishing up my third year at CLC as a faculty member in the English department. I'm also the chair of our technical communication program. Uh, And I teach uh, creative writing, technical communication, and composition. Prior to coming to CLC, I um, taught for 13 years at a college in Milwaukee. So I have a background in creative writing, in journalism, in multimodal composition, and website writing. I've also worked for a number of years as a freelance writer, and my husband and I publish a Cubs magazine. So I do the graphic design for that. He does all the writing. So it's kind of nice to be able to just focus on the design and not think about the writing for once, since much of my background was was focused on that. That's so cool. (laughs) That's a really, that's neat. Um, Do you want to plug your Cubs magazine here? (laughs) It's... Uh, the magazine is called Chicago Baseball. It is sold outside of Wrigley Field at all of home games, so check it out. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Can you tell me a little bit about the Voices of Lake County project? Sure. Voices of Lake County started about three years ago, um, and we had this idea to bring together faculty, staff, and community members to work on uh, projects related to the humanities. So we started Voices of Lake County with the concept to really give a voice to a variety of different groups within our region and our area. Um, And not just CLC students and faculty and staff, but also anyone who might be interested in having their stories heard. So each year we have a different um, concept or theme that we focus on. Last year, our concept or our theme was the Postcards Project, and that really looked at small-scale stories. Um, But it's not only storytelling, it's art, it's dance, it's photography, it's theater, um, any kind of project that's connected to the humanities. This year's project was called Lake County at Work. And the idea behind that is that we would take a year and explore labor and work within our region through the lens of the humanities. So through a series of creative projects, whether that, again, that might be dance, music, art, storytelling, we examined how work is portrayed through the lens of the humanities, what our, how our identities are shaped through our work, and what the, the future of work should look like. So what are we listening to today then on the podcast? Uh, Today we are listening to a series of stories that were developed in our free community writing workshops. So uh, Voices of Lake County um, offers free workshops for community members. You don't have to be affiliated, affiliated with CLC. We have art workshops, we have dance workshops, and we have writing workshops. 
So the stories you are about to hear were developed in our free community writing workshops. We held them throughout the 2022 to 2023 academic year at various locations throughout Lake County. And we invited community members to attend and learn about um, how to tell and write a compelling story. So we talked about imagery, we talked about story structure, we talked about narrative voice, and then we worked on concept in the workshops. And then the participants were partnered with a CLC faculty member where they worked on developing their narratives, practicing their narratives, rehearsing them. And then at our spring showcase on May 12th, the participants read the narratives out loud to an audience. Um, So you'll be hearing four of our um, narratives that were developed in our writing workshops. Anyone is welcome to participate in our free community workshops. If you are interested in learning more, um, just send us an email. You can reach us at clc.voices at clcillinois.edu. We all have to work. Sometimes paid work, sometimes unpaid work. Sometimes you end up doing work that falls into the category of other duties as assigned, work that doesn't show up on the job description. Our first storyteller, Jen Vincent, is familiar with this. Jen is a middle school teacher. She expected to teach students like math and English, but she didn't expect that her other duty as assigned would be to lead lockdown drills. This story talks about gun violence in classrooms and should be upsetting to listeners. Here's Jen Vincent. Hi, I'm Jen Vincent, and my piece is Lockdown Lament. I teach middle school language arts to 61, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. I've been in public education for 21 years, and I decided to become a teacher because I've always loved kids. I babysat a lot when I was young. I was a swim aide, I was a tutor, I was a camp counselor. I especially love to read and write, and I always love school. In every way, it made sense for me to become a teacher. I went away to college in the fall of 1998, and in April of 1999, my freshman year, I watched coverage of the Columbine shooting from my dorm room. It reminded me of elementary school in the 80s when Lori Dan opened fire in a school in Glenview, but this was different. I watched in horror, and I had no idea that the leading, that leading lockdown drills would later become part of my job description. If you haven't been a student since the early 2000s, you might not know what this looks like in schools. If you have been, you're probably all too familiar. Teachers have a very unique experience and role to play when it comes to lockdown drills. My job shifts during a lockdown. I go from interacting with kids and helping them connect with what we are learning to commanding them and telling them what to do and with conviction. And despite knowing how the drill is supposed to go, I'm faced with the reality of navigating this experience with middle school students, kids who are known for asking questions, pushing boundaries, flexing their independence, and questioning authority. Let me show you what I mean. My principal announced that we'd have our lockdown drill with students on a Thursday afternoon. Teachers went over the plan during homeroom, and then when the time came, we heard the announcement over the loudspeaker. Of course, I was prepared. I knew this was happening. I had talked over a few scenarios with students, and I explained that we would respond based on the information we had. 
the training taught me to make quick decisions based on the information that I had. I might decide to run if the shooter was not close by. I might decide to fight if the shooter was near us. Right away, I heard loud noises in the hallway. It was a simulation, but I decided we would not be able to run. We could barricade the door and prepare to fight. Okay, everyone, clear everything off the tables. I directed. I locked my door and pulled it closed. I lowered the paper accordion blind down to cover the window. I turned and students were standing still, so I tripled my speed, swiping a stack of books from the table, moving them to a counter, calling out kids' names to do the same. Now let's move everything to block the door, I directed. Some kids moved out of the way, others still stood there. I started sliding a table over to the door and I stood it on one end. Kids pushed all their tables over and we continued to pile them up to barricade the door when I heard a voice say, that's not going to work. It was Javier. I was in the middle of maneuvering another table onto the pile near the door when he reached past me to turn the door handle and push the door open. Look, he said. I looked, actually my eyes popped out of their sockets and then in one of those time standstills moments, a thousand thoughts went through my head. He's not wrong, but this is a drill. This isn't time to talk it out. The principal's coming to make sure the doors are locked. It's my job to keep that door closed and blocked, to keep the kids safe from this not real but could be real intruder. This time, this is time for me to practice keeping them safe and he just opened the door in the middle of a lockdown. He's not wrong, but I'm supposed to be in charge here. Clearly I'm not in charge here. I'm supposed to have all the answers. What do I do now? How do I respond? He's not wrong, but I'm supposed to protect him, them. I'm supposed to keep them safe. I don't even know if I believe this will work. I hate that I have to do this at all because he's not wrong. But I don't have time to listen and I already know no one will ask for my feedback and I already know this lockdown isn't a real solution. In my heart, I know this lockdown drill doesn't solve the real problem. I want to agree and talk it out and hear his thinking, but this is a drill and I'm in charge and the principal is coming and I want to protect them and I want to do my job. And how do I respond when I know in my heart he's not wrong? And then I think of my own two sons and all the other sons and daughters that sit in similar seats in classrooms just like mine across the United States. And I feel the weight clamped down on my shoulders like the tables have been piled on top of me. And I fight back tears, and I fight back the panic rising within me, and I try to keep the fear out of my voice when I say sharply, what are you doing? Don't do that. But it's not going to work, Javier says. I'm moving the table again and motioning for another student to help me. By now we have a line of furniture in front of the door, and I'm shoving all my feelings aside like I've shoved the tables up against the wall. Yeah, Omar chimed in. Javier's right. We just made a barricade for the shooter. They'll open the door and be shielded from us. I watched him hold up his hand to act on how a shooter would be able to see us and shoot us like sitting ducks, like this. Education Week started tracking school shootings in 2018. There were 24 school shootings that resulted in injuries or deaths in 2018. There were 24 school shootings that resulted in injuries or deaths in 2019. There were 10 school shootings that resulted in injuries or death in 2020. There were 35 school shootings that resulted in injuries or deaths in 2021. There were 51 school shootings that resulted in injuries or deaths in 2022. There have been 19 school shootings that resulted in injuries or deaths in 2023 so far. When I hear these numbers, 
I think about lockdown drills and I see my students' faces and my son's faces and I feel the fear in every fiber of my body. I decided to become a teacher because I've always loved kids. I especially love to read and write and I always loved school. In every way, it made sense for me to become a teacher. Besides being a teacher, I'm also a mom. I always care for the students I work with, but something shifted once I truly understood that every single student is someone's baby. Someone's baby who they cherish and celebrate, someone's baby who they send to school every day, someone's baby who they entrust to me to keep safe. Besides being a teacher and a mom, I'm also a daughter. I am someone's baby who needs to be kept safe. I love to hike and camp and practice yoga and paint and paddleboard. And while I take my job seriously, and while I'm responsible for keeping students safe, for taking care of them as if they were my own, and while I do my best, even though lockdown drills were never supposed to be part of my job description, I often wonder who is taking care of me. Work and relationships go hand in hand. Your relationship with your boss, your coworkers, clients, people coming through the checkout line at the grocery store. While we often think about these relationships as secondary to the ones in your real life or your family and friends life, the fact is we spend a lot of time with these people and our interactions can be life-changing in ways that we don't immediately realize. Our next story is from Mary Beth Bretzloff. Mary Beth tells a story of relationships that seem small on the surface but have huge impacts. It's a story of a relationship between the orthodontic assistant and two teenagers in braces. Hi, I'm Mary Beth Bretzloff, and this is my story, Book Covers. I'm often reminding myself of sayings like, don't, put, don't place your eggs all in one basket, and don't judge a book by its cover. <clears throat> In over two decades as an orthodontic assistant, thousands of patients have reclined in the chair. In fact, patients from earlier years were bringing their children in for braces. What makes ortho better than an ortho a dental assistant are the relationships you build with your patients because you see them every month for the next two years. And during that time, you learn about the books they're reading, the sports they participate in, what music they like, and are shown their homecoming pictures. You're there for the many milestones in their lives. <clears throat> there were two patients I remember very well, Jessica and Angel. And I might have played a part in changing their lives through orthodontia, but they also changed mine. Jessica was a quiet girl, and I noticed when she came to her appointments each month, her father was the one to bring her. It was unusual, and he always looked overwhelmed at this parenting gig. She blended in with so many others, light brown hair, big brown eyes, and despite the crooked teeth we were fixing, she had a beautiful smile. We talked of girl stuff on those visits, mostly boy band crushes and volleyball games. I feel like I was able to give her some adult female interaction, even if it was only for 15 minutes once a month. 
when her braces came off, we saw her less frequently with retainer checks. And during that time with Jessica's visits, there was another patient who came to us. I wasn't working the day Angel first came to our office and had his x-rays and impressions taken. I met Angel about two months after his first adjustment. The minute I peeked my head into the waiting room and called out his name, I knew there was something different about him. He was a boy of the streets, not the typical awkward teen or preteen with a mouth of metal, a tough guy with a chin up in the air exuding his machismo. Dressed in black head to toe and a black studded jacket, his spiky black hair gave him a Hispanic Billy Idol look. After I got him settled, I took out his wires to let him brush his teeth. <clears throat> I reviewed his chart, noting his address, and it was in a questionable neighborhood. The absence of his parents was noticed. Like many others of his generation, he was making the appointments, writing the check for his mother or father to sign, or handing over cash to pay for our services. He was more responsible than I realized. I would ask the usual things. What grade are you in? Which high school do you attend? And like the other patients, those responses were one or two words. Over the months, he would talk about the car he was working up to buy and how much he wanted to work on them. One Saturday morning before I went to work, I glanced over the headlines in the New Sun, and I read an article about a shooting in his neighborhood, his block even. An angel was at his Saturday morning appointment, pale and nervous. I didn't want to ask about I didn't want to ask him about it in front of the others. So I waited until he was seated, and I leaned in closer to his ear, and I asked him if he was all right. It was as if I had chipped through the proud peacock facade, for he spoke in a low, rapid delivery of how scared he was because a bullet just missed his house. I was the ear he needed at that moment. From then on, our interaction took on another level. It was like the cool aunt in somebody's family. He talked more about wanting to be a streetcar mechanic, and since my father was a Jaguar mechanic for decades, I understood the passion for cars and racing. I was still involved in my husband's uh, family's foundation focused on education, and I knew I couldn't let the light in his eyes die away. If he didn't get his chance, in his, oh, let his eyes, the light in his eyes die away if he didn't get this chance. In his senior year, I gave him a scholarship application. One day, he seemed jittery, and I asked him what was going on. He said his girlfriend's dad had beaten her and he didn't want her, that he didn't want her to date Angel, and he was worried about her. My hands froze hovering over his mouth um, about what to say, about you know, everything as he told me. In my head, my mind was racing. How do I help this boy without overstepping some kind of boundary? I thought if my son came home with the same problem, how would I advise him? I suggested that she go to her best friend and take, have the friend take pictures to document the injuries and he should stay away from the house for a while, stay in contact with her so that she knows he cares and is worried about her. And after that incident, if I was working on him, I would give him a look and he would nod and let me know everything was all good. When we presented him with the $1,000 scholarship, there was genuine excitement. The following year, 
he sent me a text asking if he could stop by the house. He showed up on my doorstep looking more like a little boy instead of the young adult he was now. He explained he needed another $1,000 for his tools because he couldn't afford the tools or the tuition at both. There was no question in my mind the foundation would help him. And shortly after that, he stopped by to thank us for our assistance, and I felt good knowing he was, I was helping him realize his dream. The following year at a CLC Foundation dinner to recognize scholarship winners, a young woman came up to me and she said, do you remember me? And those big brown eyes and the beautiful straight smile, yes, I knew exactly who she was. Jessica, I exclaimed, and I reached up to her and I said, how are you doing? What are you doing here? She says, I've just received a scholarship for the dental hygiene program. You've always been so nice to me and I decided to go into dentistry as a dental hygienist. She had bloomed into a wonderful, vibrant woman, and I felt a warm rush of pride at her accomplishments in my heart that day. It's been several years since then, but those two always remind me to remember the real story isn't on the cover. It's inside within its pages. Andrea Flores, Stanford graduate, daughter of Mexican immigrants, Waukegan born and raised, wants to tell the stories of her community. In her story, formatted as a cover letter, we hear her frustration of looking for a job in journalism during the pandemic, but also her frustration of being what too many people don't expect to see coming out of Waukegan, a Stanford graduate. Hi, my name is Andrea Flores. Um, and my piece is titled, To Whom It May Concern. To Whom It May Concern. I am responding to your job listing. Oh, uh, sorry, I'm an internship listing. I've tried applying to those full-time positions, but I keep getting told that I need more experience. So this is me getting that experience, or at least trying to. I saw the internship says to please only apply if you've received a degree within the past 12 months. I know jobs want recent graduates to exploit for low pay, but I'm wondering if I can get a little grace here. After all, this is for the opinion section, and I got a lot of those. As a person trying to break into the journalism industry, I've learned two things. One being that I love stories, especially the ones that are seldom heard in the media. I like talking to people on the phone and seeing if they are a good fit for whatever I'm producing or writing. I like crafting scripts, editing footage or audio. I like feel the feeling of sharing news with people and giving them the information necessary to form their own opinions or just to feel connected to something bigger than themselves. But I also learned that I don't like getting paid $15 an hour, working overtime but not counting it as pay and never knowing when I'm going to leave work. I don't like the feeling of the feeling guilty for eating lunch or maybe for getting lunch and resorting to candy, which I still have to pay for on that $15 an hour. I hate the feeling of going on Instagram during bathroom breaks and feeling jealous of my former classmates enjoying life while I am sitting on an uneven toilet surrounded by outdated 70s bathroom decor. Post-graduation was not always this way, but 
Before I made the jump to journalism, I was making viral TikToks on breaking immigration news for an advocacy organization and getting paid decently to do so. But I no longer wanted to focus solely on immigration advocacy. I mean, I love talking about immigration, but I have also been surrounded by the topic my whole life as a daughter of Mexican immigrants. And I wanted to report on other topics like the environment, health, business, anything that could help inform my community. And I was confident in my storytelling abilities. During that time, everyone kept saying that the job market was hot and that if I needed to find a new job, that the time was now. This is right after the height of the pandemic where all the businesses had laid off people, um, were now hiring people back. So I jumped on the chance for a new job. I left the only job I had ever known after graduating from Stanford in 2019 and, I, and through a global pandemic. I had no job lined up, but I trusted myself. Um, I thought I graduated from a top university. I have the experience. I have the confidence. I know I can get a job telling stories, but I was wrong. I learned that jobs in journalism are hard to come by. After months of submitting applications and receiving denials stating my lack of journalism experience, I decided I would just apply to any job in the newsroom. I remember applying to seven different roles at the same place, but only getting a call back for a fellowship. Regardless, I prepared for the role, read a ton of articles, kept up with current news of the week, and wrote ideas in case they asked for any during the interview process. But for most of the interview, I was just asked to explain how I did it. How did I manage to get into Stanford coming from a place like Waukegan? Almost 10 years after graduating high school, and I'm still getting those questions. But it's those same types of questions that have motivated me to be a storyteller. Waukegan is often portrayed negatively in the media, and I want to showcase the truth. I want to dive deeper into systemic inequalities and disinvestment, but also the light and joy that comes from an experiencing a sense of community. I thought my life would change once I graduated from Stanford. I didn't expect the red carpet per se, but um, maybe the ability to walk through more doors or even get grace when I want to change my career if I decide to change my mind. But then the pandemic hit and I lost that trial and error moment after college. Um, the one where I can only apply if I graduated within the past 12 months. And I feel like I constantly question my decision to be a storyteller through the job rejection emails, the ghosted cold calls, self-loathing LinkedIn comparisons, and questions like the one that I was asked that are literal reminders of what the world really views me, views me as. Yet, I hope that this moment of uncertainty is brief. I hope that by sharing my experience switching careers in my late 20s, even after graduating from one of the most elite schools can resonate with people experiencing a similar journey of failure and chaos, even when it doesn't always seem that way on social media. I hope to redefine the boundaries of this role at the opinions desk and inspire readers and listeners to embrace their journey, even if the time of exploration extends beyond the 12 months post-graduation. Sincerely, a struggling storyteller. It's not easy to be the first or to be the only, but Jane Waller's story tells us that, oh yeah, it's worth it. From her acceptance to the University of Chicago Law School in 1970, to being named Lake County's chief judge, 
Jane has had a career full of first woman to fill in the blank or only woman to fill in the blank. This story has it all. Jane takes us from small town Waukegan to her experience of freedom and hitchhiking up the California coast and the historic rallies in support of passing the Equal Rights Amendment and one woman's experience of sexism as she makes her mark in the professional workspace. Hello, everybody. I'm Jane Waller, and my piece is This Woman's Prerogative. Have you ever played the game, the guessing game, to break the ice with a bunch of strangers? Ask the group if they can figure out which of two statements about you are true and which of the, what of the other one is false. Here goes, let's play. Was I the first woman judge in Lake County? Did I get straight A's in high school? Did I w once hitchhike up the west coast of California? To make it fair, I will tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up in Waukegan, Illinois. I lived with my family at the edge of town, which is not the edge anymore, in a white frame farmhouse on 15 acres of farmland planted with alfalfa. I was a good student, I loved to read, and I wanted to march to my own drummer. My dad was a lawyer, and a little bit about him in a, in a minute. My mom was a homemaker and an activist. She once marched into the little corner store near our grade school and demanded that the owner take the girly magazines off the shelf. Another time, she chided the produce guy at the grocery store for spelling tomatoes with an apostrophe S. Later, she marched against, against the Vietnam War. She was bound and determined to raise a daughter with a mind of her own who could take care of herself. But her daughter, that would be me, spent a lot of her time growing up reading Seventeen magazine and just being a teenage girl. I mean, I was a good student, but not a straight-A student. I figured that somehow I would grow up and make my way in the world. So, imagine my surprise in the summer of 1970 when I found myself at the sad end of a failed relationship and unemployed. I did have a college degree, but no job and not too much else. So what would a girl do? A girl whose dad was a lawyer and whose mom was an activist. What else would she do? She decided to take the law boards and apply to law school. I'll tell you right now that what happened to me next would probably never happen again. I took the law boards in the summer of 1970, July of 1970, and I spent the next few weeks hitchhiking up the west coast of California. When I got home, it was August 26th, Women's Strike Day in Illinois. Supporters of the ERA had called for women to cease their daily chores and come down to the Daily Plaza in Chicago to demand the passage of the ERA. When I got back from the demonstration that day, there was a message from the Dean of Students at the University of Illinois. A spot in the um, incoming class had just opened up. Hardly ever happens. 
I was accepted to the class of 1970 and school started in two weeks. I have law school stories to tell. For example, despite the fact that women made up only 10% of the class, at least one woman could count on being called on in every class every day. When challenged, the professor said, oh, I thought you girls would like the extra help. No, we just wanted to be treated like the guys. I have other law school stories to tell, but the story I really want to tell is how that girl who read Seventeen magazine as a teenager made her way in the world as a woman lawyer without becoming bitter or a battle axe. After I graduated from law school, I came back to Waukegan and joined my dad in the practice of law. Our law office was in a little brick building across the street from the courthouse in Waukegan, where my great uncle Willie's blacksmith shop used to be. My dad and I had a small town practice, real estate closings, divorces, wills, traffic tickets, criminal defense, personal injury, a real mix and great training for what came next for me. As a young woman lawyer practicing law in Waukegan, I was a rarity in the 1970s. I could count with my fingers how many other women attorney, attorneys there were in town, and there were even fewer women attorneys who actually appeared in court. In terms of our numbers, the best thing you can say about those days is that at, ga at a gathering of lawyers, women never had to wait in line at the bathroom. On one of my early cases, my opponent happened to be one of the other few women attorneys in town. The argument before the judge got to be a little contentious, and I learned later that one of the male lawyers watching in the courtroom had gone out into the hallway to sell tickets to the cat fight. Some jibes from my fellow attorneys were minor. Where's your tie, young lady? Don't you know the dress code for lawyers is a suit and tie? My solution, I made it a habit to wear a sweet little bow at my collar. Other comments were more pointed. pointed. It was a big case with lots of lawyers and lots of litigants, and I represented one of the litigants. When the judge called the case to the bench, he announced that he only wanted the lawyers to approach the bench. When he saw me standing at the bench with the other lawyers, he said to me in a very stern voice, didn't you hear me? I said I only wanted the lawyers to appoint, approach the bench. I had another unpleasant experience with that very same judge. Lawyers sometimes have to argue alternative theories of a case. I was before the bench, and it was my turn to argue, and I began with what I thought was my best argument. It didn't take me long to realize that the judge was not buying it, so I switched to my alternate argument. My opposing attorney, the opposing uh, attorney was quick to point out the contradictions in my argument. The judge commented, commented, well, what do you expect? It is a woman's prerogative to change your mind. More about that judge in a moment. I will never forget the lawyer who told me a lawyer could either be, a woman could either be a good woman or a good lawyer, but not both. 
by his definition, to be a good woman is to be soft and sweet, sort of like those girls in the Seventeen magazine. To be a good lawyer is to be hard and aggressive. Ergo, a good woman could never be a good lawyer, nor could a good lawyer ever be a good woman. Of course, that lawyer didn't realize that he was talking to a woman lawyer who would someday be a woman judge before whom he might have to appear. I told you I was a rarity as a young woman practicing law in Waukegan. It was a challenge, but it was also a wonderful opportunity. Being among the first of a growing number of women to make the legal profession a career was actually an advantage. In 1981, when it was finally time for a woman judge in Lake County, I was in the right place at the right time. I became Lake County's first woman judge and later its first woman chief judge. And that brings me to my dad and to that judge who was so hard on me as a young woman lawyer. My dad was the sweetest, kindest, smartest man I ever met. He treated everyone with respect, and I learned from him to be a lawyer who re represents clients vigorously, but always with dignity. And so I strived to bring those traits to the bench with me, ever trying to, ever striving to treat lawyers with, and litigants as my dad would have done. So that judge, that very same judge to cause me so much pain when he, I appeared in front of him as a young lawyer. Guess what? By the time I became a judge, he had retired from the bench and had gone back to practicing law. <laughs> One day, he appeared in front of me. And let me tell you, he had no idea what he was doing. He was so out of his league. I thought to myself, hmm, the tables have turned. Counsel, I could have said, I suggest you go back to your office and read up on the law and don't come back until you know what you're doing. Instead, I listened patiently and gently ruled against him, just like my dad would have done. And my mom would have been proud of me too. And I was proud of myself too. It was my prerogative. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this special episode of CLC Connects. Tune in again in two weeks for a conversation with Dr. Sheldon Walter, CLC's Dean of Communications, Humanities, and Fine Arts. We'll talk about the role of creativity in the workplace. Catch CLC Connects wherever you love listening to podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review. It really helps other people find the show. CLC Connects is produced by the PR Marketing Department with music by Dave Asma. 